Welcome, all you happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, one of the ways in which the world really works is that we human beings build monuments. Now, it is also true that uh, we demolish monuments. Um, Sometimes these are monuments of our enemies. Uh, These are monuments of Saddam Hussein that uh, that that were pulled down by victorious U.S. forces in Iraq, and uh, similar similar things happening elsewhere, all the way to the uh, demolition of Confederate-era monuments in more recent times. I should say uh, the lamentable uh, destruction of monuments. I say lamentable not because I am a supporter of slavery. Uh, no, of course not. I say lamentable because... Uh, when you build monuments to your history, then things that are part of our history are, are, are retained. And this idea of whitewashing history uh, is Stalinist. This idea of photoshopping news pictures to convert reality to the official party propaganda line and uh, and again removing these in uh, in an attempt to ameliorate the fury on the left just made no sense uh, that kind of surrender is something i generally do not recommend um, in the same way i never recommend pointing an empty gun at anybody which is another way of saying issuing an ultimatum with absolutely nothing behind it, right? It was. Uh, it's just a, a sad thing. Um, I I had a very good friend once, uh, a gentleman older than than I was, um, who'd had a very distinguished career, as far as I knew, at a large uh, banking firm, a, 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 a an investment banking firm, whose name you would definitely recognize. And um, for a while, he was on the board of the uh, organization, it is my privilege to serve, the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And uh, at some point, and it was was over a, uh, I think it was over an issue um, as to how central uh, Israel and Israel issues would be in the affairs of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. And it was very much my uh, conviction, and I think those of most of the founders of the organization, that the organization should be uh, about America. It should be an alliance of Jews and Christians, a celebration of the values that Jews and Christians share in common, values that uh, created the United States of America, and um, this particular individual, if I remember correctly, uh, was very insistent that um, as part of the mission, uh, Israel should play a role. Well, today, you know, today Israel has become uh, 
barometer, a sort of moral barometer of world opinion, and uh, where a country stands with respect to Israel, I find tells me a whole lot about its economy, uh, about its its role vis-a-vis America in the world, uh, lots of things. But back then, this is a few years back, that wasn't the case, and so I held out very strongly that uh, uh, that was not something I uh, wanted to do. And so um, I should also mention that I, I was always puzzled. Was, we, we spoke many, many times, and, and I asked, but I never got an explanation or an answer as to why he left that um, that large investment banking firm based in New York, uh, because generally speaking, people who served in that and became eventually became partners were set for life. You know, it didn't make sense to leave. And at any rate, um, back to the, the the board story, what happened was that he issued an ultimatum to me, and and he said to me, if you don't agree with me to make uh, Israel central to the uh, to the mission statement of the AAJC, uh, then I'm going to quit the board. And, you know, my reaction was almost instantaneous. It was almost without thinking. If I would stop to think, I might have thought, uh, you know, it's possible I would have said, well, you know, is it really worthwhile losing a good man over a... Um, over, over something like this, which is really more theoretical than practical. But I have such a deep ingrained resistance to surrender uh, to ultimatums that I immediately said, well, on behalf of the rest of the board, we accept your resignation. And um, and that was that, you know, I, I uh, acted on that immediately. We, we ended his a formal leadership relationship with the 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 organization although to his credit um our friendship endured and his support of the organization continued but um sometime later we were having lunch together in Los Angeles and i remember sitting down with him and you know again you know reminiscing a little bit and saying how sorry i was that his relationship uh, had to with the organization had to end and then all of a sudden i i had an epiphany a, a, a startling insight and all of a sudden i said to him is it possible have have we just landed on the answer to a mystery i've always had about you he said what's that i said are you no longer with such and such an investment bank in New York because you issued them some kind of similar ultimatum. And he was silent for a few moments and looking very poignant, he nodded his head and he said, yes. Um, and so to lighten the moment, I just, you know, you really got to stop doing this, but, but that's, that's what happened. Yeah. Don't, don't issue ultimatums, a, uh, a really, really bad idea. Not one that uh, ever, you know, unless you're going to act on it. And in his case, he he acted on it. But um, in, in both situations, he was the loser. He just didn't have enough ammunition in the gun. I'm quite sure that this banking firm did exactly what I did. They didn't hesitate for a moment. You threatening us that you're going to quit? Go. Fine. I'm sure they did exactly the same thing. So if, you, if you're ever going to issue that sort of ultimatum, you really got to make sure that you've got a lot of ammunition um, in your chamber. And I think that to surrender to an ultimatum, particularly when the other side lacks the ammunition and 
quite evidently lacks the ammunition is uh, shameful and craven. And, and that's really what I think did happen. There was no ammunition uh, on the other side, but in this desperate and frantic bid to curry favor with the left, uh, municipalities, cities, counties uh, fell over their feet in their eagerness to remove those statues. But a a healthy society and a, a healthy civilization does build monuments and statues to things that uh, are important to it, all of which is my way of introducing you to a very magnificent monument. In, look, and these things are subjective. I mean, obviously, this is my opinion, and uh, I would be surprised, but but not shocked to hear vociferous disagreement. But uh, one of the most striking monuments of this kind that we have in the United States of America is the uh, St. Louis Gateway Arch Monument. This is a, uh, it's like a 60-story monument on the banks of the Mississippi River, the west bank of the Mississippi River in the city of St. Louis, right near Bushfield. And uh, it is a stainless steel arch. It is, it is so big that the, the dimensions are overwhelming when you actually stand there. And uh, I went there very soon after I first arrived in the United States. And I, I stood at the base of one of the legs and uh, put my back against it and then tilted my head back just to look upwards. And it's mind-boggling. The cross-section of the arch is triangular. Um, it's made up of triangular sections. And each triangle near the base, the, the sides of the equilateral triangle are about 55 feet long. So, you know, 55 by 55 by 55 is the, the triangle. And then it, it keeps shrinking as, the, monu- as the, 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 uh, the stainless steel sort of twists its way up into the sky. Uh, it shrinks in dimensions all the way down to, I think, about 15 feet, something like that, 16 maybe, very, very close to that figure. And uh, it's, it's hollow. You can actually take a tramway all the way up to an observation platform at the top. And look, it's, it's a remarkable thing. And it, it so quickly captures its intention, the gateway to the West. And all you've got to know is just some of the basic history of the United States. All you've got to do is know how this used to kind of be the border. You know, the Mississippi River was it. The mouth of the Mississippi was held by the French. Uh, Jefferson, President Jefferson, was extremely concerned uh, about the fact that um, many of the settlers that had moved westwards across the mountains and towards the Mississippi uh, were increasingly dependent upon goods being shipped on the Mississippi. And uh, there was worry about what the French might do with New Orleans if they, if they would block American passage. And um, in, uh, at that point, our uh, delegate to Paris, our ambassador to Paris, was a man by the name of Livingston. 
and um, President uh, Jefferson was concerned about what might happen. And so he sent James Monroe, who was an assistant to him, later to become the fifth president of the United States, he sends him uh, to join Livingston in Paris. To their astonishment, um, the French unexpectedly make an offer to sell vast tracts of land uh, west of the Mississippi, um, huge tracts. I mean, in some cases, all the way up to the Canadian border, huge piece of land, uh, for cents on the acre and why they you know they needed money there was um the, the french had their own problems but whatever it was livingston and madison bought <laughs> that land in what became known as the louisiana purchase and that was about 1803 i think somewhere there and this was just the most amazing thing um it 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 sort of all of a sudden people's vision in you know whether it was Ohio or Maryland or uh, uh, or uh, Virginia wherever you were like the main populated areas of the country, all of a sudden, people's vision expanded and my goodness this is a huge country we have, and this it was a massive increase to the land, and it changed I mean it 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 was partially responsible I think for the way that. Uh, Americans developed this can-do, limitless attitude that, yeah, you know, it's out there, go get it, go west, young man. A lot of that, I think, had to do with the incredible impact on the country uh, that the Louisiana Purchase made. Right after that, uh, the president sent Lewis and Clark, that big expedition which went all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and their job was to sort of explore and evaluate, appraise our new purchase. What did we buy? And uh, it, you know, it, it turns out to have been an incredible buy. And um, and all of the stuff is going on in the early 1800s. And of course, it it continued. And um, uh, well, so um, I'm. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, the idea was to come up with a monument that would capture for our time and to help us understand and to help future generations understand how magnificent this looking west concept was. Later on, you know, you remember the Monroe Doctrine, doctrine but this idea that our destiny as a, as a country lay all the way to the Pacific and that all of a sudden it was not the way everyone assumed. Everyone assumed that um, you know, even crossing the Appalachian Mountain, or as they're called in, the, in, in that particular area, that string, that, that chain of mountains that runs all the way from New Hampshire all the way down, uh, crossing that was a big deal. And then, uh, you know, to the, to the Great Lakes, if you're sort of north, uh, we're looking at Ohio and New York, uh, looking south all the way past that to the Mississippi, but why stop there? One could actually go beyond, and that was what excited people so much. So this monument was a monument to westwards expansion, and it was in the 1940s that they held a competition to design this arch, and there were a number of entries, I think about 100 entries roughly, and a Finnish-American architect uh, by the name of Sarinen, um, came up with this stainless steel triangular cross-section magnificent archway 
And I think it was almost unanimous, and people just fell in love with it because it so captured the brief of the monument, the this vision of seeing a whole new world out there and an archway is such a great metaphor come on in there's room for everybody come on through here this is the portal to the future and to prosperity and to everything and to make it so big and so brilliant how it glints in the sunshine um, I think it's a project that has used more stainless steel than any other in, in all of America. Uh, the whole thing is coated all, and, you, and I said it's big, it's coated with stainless steel, it's huge, and it shines, and it's wonderful. Anyway, to me, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, why do I tell you all of this? Because the um, visitor center, which used to speak about everything I've been talking about, has suddenly and recently been totally upgraded and changed. And you won't be shocked to hear that the description of the arch and what it stood for and the Louisiana Purchase and all of these glorious moments in American history have been recast in dark, dystopian, gloomy terms. And I'll tell you exactly what that looks like in just a moment coming back. The website rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, I urge you to please uh, join us there and um, first of all take a look at a package for uh, transforming financial destiny it's called the income abundance set and you can take a look and read about that Uh, for anybody in your family who is I don't know, just graduated, uh, who's starting the real world, who's starting a job or starting to build a career or now deciding to make some money, or somebody who's been around for years and hasn't done well and wants to relook at the wonderful world of making money, uh, all of that at the website if you look at the income abundance set. Also, would love to have you subscribing to our mailing list because that's the way we stay in touch. Anyway, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Let me not go on too much about that. It's right there, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Yes, we're back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, I'm talking about the glorious Gateway Arch in St. Louis. So uh, what happened was that back in 1935, um, Franklin Roosevelt um, made it a national park, and they named it the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial. And the idea was to honor Thomas Jefferson, um, who effectively literally doubled the landmass of the United States with this Louisiana purchase we were just talking about. And uh, so St. Louis was a sort of gateway to the New West, and uh, the arch obviously is meant to invoke that idea. So uh, they went ahead and they had a design competition in the 40s, And then finally, it actually, and I don't know why it took so long, they didn't start building until the early 60s, 61, 62, 63, somewhere there. And I think it finished in about 65. And uh, I saw it for the first time in 1974. So I I didn't realize it was uh, probably not even 10 years old when I saw it. I didn't realize that. But um, anyway, and I've seen it many times since then, obviously, as well. I really have. 
But, uh, um, okay, so, so that's what it's meant to be. And just listen to its name, right? The Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, because Jefferson expanded the country. And this is the gateway to the new expanded country. Well, it's been changed in the year 2018. The name is no longer the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, which, I mean, I remember it as that name, but now it's called the Gateway Arch National Park. That's all. Gateway Arch National Park. So it's taken out of context. Anytime you heard the name, the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, so we immediately say, okay, this has something to do with Thomas Jefferson. It has something to do with national expansion. What's going on? Let's talk about that. But now it's ripped out of its historic context, and it's now called the Gateway Arch National Park. It is what it is. No past, no future. It's the Gateway Arch. There it is. Okay. Uh, No more national expansion celebration, right? That's gone. Um, So the... Uh, the visitor center, the, 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 the areas you walk through, now do no celebration about the expansion, which I remember from seeing it back in the 70s. Uh, no, now it's all about the negative effect. You're not going to believe me. And, um, and I, I haven't seen this yet with my own eyes, but uh, this is the, uh, the reality of what you've got there now. I'm thinking of going to see it when I can, and, uh, but, but this is what it is. All of that celebration of expansion has vanished. And now uh, it talks about, they, they depict Indian uh, tribal people saying that, Columbus, and I'm quoting now, Columbus came and murdered our people. And there is absolutely no counter voice to that. In other words, it's provided this new museum, at the, the renaming of the Gateway Arch, taking away expansion, is now providing a voice to the to those who wish to denigrate the United States of America. Now, I just want to um, sort of take a quick glimpse at reality. Um, And you have to think about clashes in the past between more more technologically advanced societies and others. Um, China, elsewhere in Asia, India, Africa, whenever there has been a clash between two societies, particularly more technologically advanced and less, when in that circumstance, and and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples to examine, when in all of those times have the victors not vanquished the conquered, when have the victors uh, consulted the conquerors conquered about their preferences you know would you like to be absorbed into the belgian congo or uh, would you would hong kong yes is going to be british now is that comfortable for you or you indians i hope you don't mind 
um, that we're going to be taking you over. Oh, you still want to continue burning men's widows? No, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. Or if you do, we'll practice one of our customs, which is hanging the people who do that. So, no, you won't be doing that anymore. Um, Anytime there has been one nation or one group of people conquering another, the conquered have their land absorbed into the land of the conquering, and it is the culture and habits and customs of the conquerors that take foot in the new... I'm just mentioning, that's how the world really works. But you would know that to see the new uh, museum at the Gateway Arch Memorial. The Gateway... No, not Memorial. They took the word Memorial out. Gateway Arch National Park is what it now is. So uh, Columbus came and murdered our people. Right, that's that's stated without any counter voice in the in the. Uh, um, then it says in there that because of illegal land seizure, America legally owns no more than a few acres. Okay, I can fully accept that somebody says that. But now let's talk about why there is no legal question to America's ownership of American territory and that, yes, winning it through war is one of the ways that you do get to own territory if you are a nation. It's not a way individuals can, but it's a way nations do. And so uh, um, no countervoice to that. No Nobody saying, uh, well, wait a second, that's not true. This is present, and you know this is going to be uh, on the tour of children's groups, not only in, in the states of Illinois and Missouri around the area, but probably from elsewhere as well. And all of these assertions, these anti-American assertions, are being presented as fact without any challenge and without any counter view whatsoever. Um, they also claim that uh, when the Louisiana Purchase took place, can you believe it? American law was imposed. No longer was beautiful French law and Spanish law the law in those areas. But when the U.S. took over, U.S. law and women lost rights. Honest to goodness, I'm telling you, that's what you will read in the exhibits at the new Gateway Arch National Park. Uh, Enslaved families were torn apart and free persons of color, that's how it's presented, free persons of color were subjected to considerably increased oppression. That's how bad it was that America uh, did the Louisiana Purchase. Um, They keep on asking the question in the museum there, um, shouldn't the residents of these new, of these acquired territories had a voice? Do they want to be taken over by America? Uh, And it asks whether acquiring land through warfare is justified. Uh, It questions, how can you celebrate those going out westwards? when they had a belief that they could seize land for their own use, even if other people had already lived there. All right, it's, it's very bad. It's, it's self-hating. It's self-denigrating. Uh, 
And, um, and the entire pre- presentation of everything in St. Louis at this museum is seen through the uh, lens of nothing but America's failings, nothing about its promise, nothing about its freedoms, nothing about the goodness, the, uh, the prosperity, everything that brought people and still continues to attract people from around the world. Not a word about that. Just the negative presentation of everything wrong with America. Uh, the, uh, the design competition back in the 1940s that resulted in the design for the arch, that design brief said, we want a monument that would keep alive in the present and in the future the daring and untrammeled spirit that conceived of and made possible the territorial integrity and national greatness of the United States of America. That's what it said back in 1947. Well, the current museum at the Gateway Arch could hardly be more different from that. Okay, so what is going on here? And is there any connection whatsoever between what I've been describing that has taken place in St. Louis and the general assault on America that we find on the left throughout our culture? And how about the war on the family? In other words, is it possible that what we really are talking about here is a tendency to loathe that which is close to you, to loathe your family, to loathe your relatives, to loathe your people, to loathe your faith, your tribe, and to favor the alien, the distant, the, the strange, the further something away is from us. It's more appealing. Is that, is that possible? Is that what we're talking about? I've mentioned before that uh, uh, Paul Johnson wrote a book called Intellectuals. One of the things he points out as he identifies numerous uh, intellectuals that have played such a role in shaping academic attitudes in the West, uh, these were all people who are horrible to their families, horrible to their spouses and children, horrible to their friends, but oh, they loved humanity in the abstract. Is it possible that the way that God created us is that we find it easier and more appealing, indeed, we find it more seductive, to like the distant. It's much easier to be concerned about the poor of the world or the poor of the nation. But how about if there's someone in your family who needs help? Not nearly as appealing. It's a love of the distant in abstract form rather than the real and the close. And what it does is it completely abolishes the idea of a virtuous hierarchy. In other words, do I owe any more to my children than I owe to your children? That's a really important question, and it's one we have looked at in the past on this show. Uh, Do I owe more to my spouse 
than to you? Do I owe more to my relatives? Do I owe more to my own countrymen than I owe to people in other countries? Right? Now, that's different from saying, does God prefer Americans to Afghanis? I'm not saying that. Right? God is God. But me, as an American, I am, yes, I am supposed to care more about Americans than Afghanis. Because if you care about everybody, you end up caring about nobody. And that's why Judeo-Christian tradition emphasizes a hierarchy. If you have the ability to do something for other people, who should it be for? Okay, family, neighborhood, neighbors, friends, your faith community, people in your city, people in your state, people in your country. You've got to work outwards in concentric circles, in ripples emanating from you right in the middle. And that is how virtue is applied. This must mean that since we are told in Scripture to love that which is close, for instance, the fifth commandment is to honor our parents, must be that there is a natural instinct in people in the reverse direction. And that's what we're going to take a look at next. First of all, uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. We've had some really good Ask the Rabbis lately. By that, I mean questions that people submit to us. And uh, some of them we answer privately. Some we choose to answer in a public format. And we publish those. So you can actually read those in the Ask the Rabbi page of our website. And you can also subscribe to receiving once a week an Ask the Rabbi question that somebody sends us along with the answers. Needless to say, we select for publication the questions we think have the widest interest. And I think you will be as amazed as we are at some of the fascinating things that people share with us. Some of the fears and concerns, the hopes and ambitions, the drives that people have and the obstacles that crop up to to block the achievement of those goals. All of those things we speak about at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also take a look at the Income Abundance Set, which is a package of books and audio programs, which in combination provide a comprehensive course for economic advancement. It's all quite clear at the website rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look and see if that is something that will enhance your life. Meanwhile, quick break, and then we shall continue here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show continues with my always present appreciation for those of you who help promote the show, those of you who tell other people about it or send links to the show, uh, all very appreciated. Obviously, the more people that listen to the show, the more economically viable it becomes and the more enjoyable it becomes for me to work on the show and prepare the show. Now, one of my favorite questions to ask liberals is this. What would America have to look like for you to become a conservative? All of you progressives, socialists, liberals, leftists, you're all engaged believing yourselves to be devout idealists 
in changing the country. And look how successful you've been at it. Look at how successfully you have forced your moral ideas down our throats over the last, I want to say, 50 years. But uh, I would say really most aggressively, probably most aggressively, uh, since 2008, maybe 2004. But uh, change after change after change. Uh, you thought homosexual marriage would be it, right? You thought, well, originally, uh, equal rights for homosexuals, that would be it. Okay, no. It was then homosexual marriage. Okay, that's going to be it. No, it's actually uh, anybody who doesn't agree with homosexuality uh, is a hater. It's somebody who we want to be able to use the force of law against, Fine. Okay, we agree to that. Now, can can we now just leave things alone? No. Now it's got to be transgender. And it's one thing after another, constantly reshaping America into a new kind of a place. Now, there are many different ways to distinguish between what we broadly think of as the two main rivers of political uh, flow in the country. You know, liberalism, conservatism, um, progressivism, traditionalism. Basically, we get the idea. There are many ways in which to define progressivism and conservatism, uh, but in general, in general, we get the idea. But looking at one particular way today, that would be the desire to constantly reform and remake society. As if your goal is not a certain kind of a society, but your goal is a never-ending process. That's really what seems to be happening, which is why I love asking liberals who engage me in conversation. I love asking them, please tell me, what would America look like for you to put down your arms and say, you know what? I now am happy. I like it just the way it is. And not a single one has ever been able to give me an answer to that question. And rightly so, because according to their view, there is no such thing. We always have to be changing and improving and making things better. But the problem is that if you don't appreciate what is, then there is more peril in improving than in doing nothing. And this is equally true, I think, in, you know, think of home renovation, right? If, if you're not tearing your home down and rebuilding it, but if there are a lot of things about your home you like, then you need to talk to your architect or your designer and say, look, these are the things I like. These are the things I don't want to change. These are the things that although we'd like a more modern home, we want different bathrooms, different kitchen with these kinds of features, and we'd like the kitchen more linked to the dining room. Many, many kinds of things you might say, but at the same time, a wise architect or designer will also be saying to you, Fine, okay, so let's start off with the things you like, the things you don't want to change. That's crucial. 
So fiercely does the flame of change burn in the progressive breast that everything is up for grabs. The family not working. We've got to reshape the family. The economy not working. We've got to reshape that. And so fiercely is that desire to reform, to reshape, to re-sculpt, to rebuild, that there is very little attention paid to underlying realities. So, for instance, in reshaping the family, they ignore the fact that men and women are different from one another in very fundamental ways, spiritually and psychologically, not just physically. That gets ignored because there is a vision they have of changing the family, taking away its inherent unfairness, not only within the family, but even the family itself is unfair, conferring unreasonable benefits and advantages on people who have families as opposed to people who don't. That's not right. And so we must banish and get rid of all family. All of this is designed to improve. And the economy, forget about basic realities. Right? It's fundamental in human nature that each and every one of us will work harder in our own interests than we will in the interests of, quote, society. Right? You just care about yourself. We don't want such greedy people. We want people who are going to care about everybody. Fine. But human nature is not infinitely malleable. Forget it. Not interested. We are not interested in any underlying facts because we don't accept the existence of any such facts. The art and dream and goal of progressivism is to constantly progress. And because their actions have failed again and again and again, because they're, they're, uh, the, the areas in which they have uh, built their dreams, cities that have been under progressive political power for decades, cities that today are completely chaotic and unworkable. So what progressivism or leftism does in facing the flagrant failures of their actions, they turn around and request moral credit for their intentions. Oh, we believe in a fair society. Who can be opposed to that? Right, but while you are trying to make a, quote, fair society, you are destroying people's lives whether it's on a national level, whether it's what the Bolsheviks did in the old Soviet Union or what uh, the Chinese communists did in the 1950s or what Castro did in Cuba, the, oh, and for that matter, what's being done in, in many other places, both in and outside the United States. The goal is always progress and change. And if it damages lives and makes things worse, well, that's just a step on the way because you can't possibly dispute the fact that everything that they are doing is with such moral, high-minded, noble intentions. And here's one of the clever things they've done, which is to confer 
enormous moral prestige upon the malcontent. The more unhappy you are, the more virtuous you are. The so-called protester is like the high priest of current secular church. When you think of people engaged in roles such as social um, organizer, you might remember pre-presidential Barack Obama and many others, when people would say, or still do, I'm a social activist, I'm a social organizer, everybody, ooh, ah, oh, you are so highly moral, you are so selfless, you are so virtuous. But now I ask you to think, what might somebody have said had you told them in 1830? It was a high time of American optimism, you know, in the years following the Louisiana Purchase, or in, shall we say, uh, you know, 1958, years following World War II. Imagine during that time, somebody would have identified themselves as, I'm a social, I'm, I'm a community organizer, I'm a community activist. People would have burst out laughing. What sort of job is that? Right? In what way are you providing goods or services that are valued by your fellow human beings? Or, to put it uh, very directly, are the so-called beneficiaries of your work the ones who pay you for it? And if the answer to that is no, then there's a real question mark as to what's going on. It's a real question mark. Now, I realize, I realize that that can throw into question the whole world of the non-profit. But you see, in churches and synagogues, for the most part, these organizations are sustained by the free will offerings or the dues paying of their members. And so it's the beneficiaries of the goods and services that pay for them. Now, I, I realize, obviously, that there are many nonprofits that don't work on that model, right? You know, the Red Cross is one where services are provided to people who don't pay for them because the carrying costs of the organization are borne by other people. I get that, and uh, perhaps another time would be a better time to discuss the, uh, the role of the nonprofit. But uh, I have said in the past that, you know, if, if a successful uh, business person, somebody who's built up businesses, acquired a bit of money, wants to know what is the best way to charitably dispose of a million dollars, I'm not sure that the best possible answer is not, please start a new business that'll give a whole lot of people jobs and provide things that people need to at, at a good price to other people. Um, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure that the best good for the most people can be achieved by giving the money to a nonprofit or to a charity. This is not a blanket statement because there are charities and there are charities. There are nonprofits and there are nonprofits. But let's not automatically assume that everything in the non-profit arena is good because after all we all know that profit is so evil and so bad 
And so that distinction between liberalism and conservatism is an important one, where conservatism sees the value of what there is. That doesn't mean the conservative sees everything through rose-colored spectacles and that there are no flaws and failures, not at all. But seeing and knowing and appreciating the value of what there is makes change a lot less perilous, a lot less. And so I think it's fair to say that in general, the conservative has gratitude for what is. Now, there is no gratitude at all apparent in the visitor center at the Gateway Arch Park in St. Louis. No gratitude, no enthusiasm, and uh, it so happens that it is on the 4th of July that I'm actually speaking these words and taping the show in preparation for you. So it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be a good few days past the 4th of July when you get a chance to, to hear this. But um, I, I can't help feeling that a proper observance of the 4th of July includes enormous gratitude and appreciation for what is, as opposed to nothing but bitterness, derision, negativity about the country, which is so much of what pervades the heart of progressivism in America today. Our website is www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And as always, I ask you to visit there. Um, I, I hope that you will find there value because there's a lot of information. There are a lot of thought tools that go back over time. Uh, there are thought tools that uh, speak about... Um, Oh, there's so many of them. I have favorites that just pop up, but but a current one um, that that is there um, observes the fact that in the Bible, there are only three times, excuse me, I shouldn't say in the Bible, I should say in the five books of Moses, there are only three times where someone's name, where somebody summons by God by repetition of the name, you know, like Henry, Henry, I'm calling you. No, Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Jacob, and Moses, Moses. Uh, there's also Samuel, Samuel, but that's not in the five books of Moses. And uh, I speak about why it is that in the actual Hebrew text, there's a little dividing line between Abraham and Abraham and between Jacob and Jacob, but not between Moses and Moses. And it has something to do with the fact that Moses had a role in the transformation of his life. And the fascinating lesson for each of us from all of this is the extent to which we have the capacity to transform our own lives, provided we are able to think boldly and out of the box, and provided we are able to liberate ourselves from the constraints of convention. That which we have always done is not necessarily the best way to move forward. Anyway, that's one of the thought tools you can read at rabbidaniellappin.com. And you can also read up on a resource that I commend to the attention of anybody 
who wants to transform their finances. It's called the Financial Abundance Set, and uh, you'll read about that also at rabbidaniellappin.com. Visit there, and uh, we will be back together in just a few moments. Back we are together. It's the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and interesting, is it not, that in both Judaism and Christianity, there is the idea of a glorious messianic future, right? Some set of circumstances, and and again, um, I could sit down with a Christian brother and uh, and we could come up with some phrasing that we would both be equally comfortable with. Um, something that speaks about uh, at a time of God's choosing, um, perfection comes to the world, and etc., etc. But in other words, we, we all have in mind some kind of um, uh, putting right all the wrongs and, and injustices of the world. And eventually, with God's help in his time, this is, is going to come to be. But we all recognize a supernatural element to that. It's not as if um, Judaism and Christianity, a biblical worldview, uh, command us to devote our waking hours to the bringing about of a messianic utopia. Uh, God has a role in this as well, you know, in, in his time. Uh, we are supposed to do whatever we can to bring about his kingdom on earth, and that means in terms of doing the things that we are specifically instructed to do and avoiding the things that we're explicitly uh, prohibited from doing. But it's interesting that the secular world of socialism also has as its central theme the same idea of being able to bring about a utopia. The only difference is that there is no supernatural, godly, messianic element there, and so people have to do it themselves. And that's why the left is so preoccupied with bringing about a utopian reality. This is why it is that particularly during the Obama eight years. But again, it, it can certainly be tracked way before that as well. But heavily during those years, uh, the administration under President Obama was focused on utopia. It was change after change after change to bring about a new state of fairness and togetherness and all kinds of wonderful good intentions. But somehow, nothing that actually worked out Got to make the nations of the world like us. Well, didn't really help. So what is the difference? The difference is that in progressivism, there is prestige in discontent, as I said earlier. Uh, you are a somebody if you protest and if you resist and you reject and you want to bring about change. And you cannot answer the question of what would turn you into a conservative that just wants to protect and preserve. What would do that? The answer is nothing. Nothing ever would. 
And so these high-ranking occupations like activist or organizer, these things mean nothing whatsoever in the real world. They mean nothing whatsoever in the world of conservatism, as I'm going to explain in just a moment. But they mean an awful lot in the world of the progressive. I'm a black activist. Oh, please let me do something for you. I'm a Jewish activist. Don't think they don't have them. They have people who describe themselves as Jewish activists. And these are the same people who speak about, oh, we must all be united and we must be together. But I'm a black activist. Right. Uh, A community organizer. That doesn't mean everybody. It means certain parts of the community. So it's a very, very different. Let Let me read to you from... Uh, the uh, Virginia Declaration of Rights. This is from the summer of 1776, uh, just before July. Uh, This was in June 1776. And this is what they wrote then. You know, it still exists today. That all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into a state of society... They cannot, by any compact, deprive or divest their posterity. In other words, there are certain inherent rights which you cannot give up. Namely, and what are these? The enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property. Interesting, isn't that? And then the last few words are, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. The enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property. Now, um, there was a psychologist. Well, he was an author and a psychologist. His name was William James. And he lived in the towards the end of the 19th century. And in 1890, he published a book called The Principles of Psychology, which I love. And, and by the way... I, I, I um, I think that anybody who still thinks that there is any value in Sigmund Freud's psychology and psychiatry is out of touch with reality. Um, William James did have a much more correct understanding of how the human soul works than Sigmund Freud, who didn't have a clue. So let me read to you from a few words in the 10th chapter of this book called the principles of psychology by william james i really i really like these these sentences here it comes in its widest possible sense however a man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his not only his body and his psychic powers but his clothes and his house, his wife and his children, his ancestors and his friends, his reputation and his work, his land, his horses, his yacht and his bank account. All these things give him the same emotions. If they wax and prosper, he feels triumphant. If they dwindle and die away, He feels cast down, not necessarily in the same degree for each thing, but in much the same way for all. 
That is so true. And so to that extent, a government that allows people to go ahead and make prosper their bodies, their intellectual and spiritual abilities, their clothing, their house, their property, their family, their relationship with their past and future, their children, their relationships with friends, their bank accounts, etc., 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 as William James said, a government that allows those th- a man to go ahead or a woman to go ahead and make those things prosper is great. But a government that tries to restrict that area in the goal of trying to achieve a utopian vision, really bad, really very destructive. The fact is that most of the time, wouldn't it be true to say that you and I are not sitting around trying to plan utopia? We're not trying to figure out what other people should be doing in order to improve society and to change the country and make the world a better place. I don't think we're really doing that. Most of the time, we're sort of evaluating the actual concrete choices we have before us. We're choosing how to make money. We're choosing how to spend it, what should we buy, what should we sell. We're thinking about our careers. Can we improve our careers? Can we do something about them? Uh, We might be trying to form friendships. We might be trying to form romantic alliances. We might be thinking of getting married and starting a family. Um, uh, We're trying to maybe find a home. We're not trying to build utopia. We're doing the things we care about. We might be getting together with friends for a 4th of July picnic or a barbecue. That's important. It's more important than trying to improve the world because by doing just that, we are improving the world. And that is why the United States Constitution is only 4,600 words, not even 5,000 words. That's very short, you know. You know, the country in which I was born, South Africa, struggling valiantly to make a go of it. The South African constitution is 60,000 words. America's, not 5,000. Under 5,000, South Africa, 60,000. How about the constitution of the Russian Federation? Also 60,000 words. Um, How about the European Union? It's not even finished yet, and it's more than 60,000 words, much more. And nobody for a moment thinks that those constitutions actually mean anything. And so in South Africa, when uh, Julius Nerema gets up and, uh, and says it's time to strip land away from white people and give it to black people, Nobody gets up and says, hey, wait a second, that's against the Constitution. Because the Constitution doesn't mean anything. And in the Russian Federation, anybody who was locked away, or if the government decided to execute somebody on the streets of London, nobody said, wait a moment, that's against our Constitution. Because it didn't mean anything. In America, it means something. 
Is that because it's such a well-written constitution? Well, it is pretty well-written, no question about it. But what would happen if you tried to place the Constitution of America on the people of Somalia? How about if you tried to put the American Constitution on the people of Libya? How about if you tried to put the American Constitution on Iran? Be laughable, right? Completely laughable. It wouldn't make any difference, wouldn't work at all. And when people express fear of immigration, one of the fears, sometimes unspoken, is the fear that we are increasing the proportion of citizens in America to whom the Constitution means nothing. And so it's not any magic in the words. The magic is in the feelings that people have towards that document. And the fact remains that we don't really have the mechanism for dealing with violations of the Constitution at very high levels. So let's say, for instance, that by mistake, we were to elect a president who was not born in America and whose parents were not born in America. Let's imagine that 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 happened. And three weeks after the January date of when he becomes president or she, uh, we suddenly all discover, oh, wait a sec, this is against the Constitution. So we go to the president, we say, you know, we, we really think you have to step down because your presidency is in violation of the Constitution. And he says, no, not going to do it. We have absolutely no mechanism for dealing with that, none whatsoever. And, and, and likewise with other aspects of it. And so its whole force and its power is the result entirely of the hearts and souls of American citizens. That's one of the fears that people have about a change in the nature of America. So what government should restrict itself to doing is nothing but trying to preserve what I call a framework of predictability. Right? Don't impose these huge changes. Don't change the definition of marriage. Don't impose huge taxation changes. Don't uh, impose huge medical. All of these things impact predictability. And when predictability goes down, people are less able to do those things in their lives that they want to do to further their own interests, which is exactly what we should all be doing. Because in furthering our own interests within a world of a free market and law and property rights, we cannot do those things without also serving our fellow human beings. That's what we should be doing. Um, G.K. Chesterton, great Catholic writer, G.K. Chesterton, by the way, uh, if, if you enjoy fiction, take a look at his Father Brown series. I've recommended that in the past. I recommend it again. But one of the great things he said was uh, how sad it is that we have this horrible modern trend of sacrificing the normal to the abnormal. And there it is. Because there are a few guys who decide they want to be women, we have to upend student athletics because guys who so-called change to women and then 
compete in athletics as women, in spite of the fact that they have enormously more significant uh, muscle and strength and size abilities, you know, fine, sacrifice the normal to the abnormal. It doesn't matter. Because there are uh, some men who want to use the women's bathroom, sacrifice the normal to the abnormal. Uh, Because, well, I could carry on, couldn't I? And so could you. So you don't need me to do that. But just remember, G.K. Chesterton's, the tragedy of the modern project, of modern progressivism, is its tendency to sacrifice the normal for the abnormal. And that's really what it is that we're talking about. So uh, that's as far as we can go for today. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July together with friends and family and that uh, you are looking forward to a profitable and healthy and successful summer in the second half of 2018. And um, I again invite you to visit our website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, and I, I, I ask you to do that for your benefit and for mine. In other words, uh, it's only if that website provides you with useful information, with uplifting data, uh, that, that you should visit. And I think it does. That certainly is our goal. And so uh, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Until we are together next week, a week to you of good health and prosperity. God bless.